Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This is John Middlecoff from 3 and Out with John Middlecoff. Superchargers, headlights, and more with over 122 million parts. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hey everybody, I'm Logan Camden. I'm Carson Braver. And this is Nerd Sesh. No! Oh my God, how could he do that? Are you on Donate? What? Charles Darwin. All right, well today, Logan, you and I are reunited with an old friend, and that is a historical top 10 list. We haven't done one of these in a while, but today we're going to be tackling the top 10 NBA duos in league history. And the way that we have decided to make this criteria as clear as possible is we have chosen a peak season for each of these duos. Now, your peak season and my peak season may be different, and that actually could be an interesting discussion point as well but the idea is it's not about career accomplishments it's not about longevity it's which duo was the best at their best and so let's start at the bottom with number 10 who do you have at number 10 i have bob Cousy and bill russell now i expected this duo to be much higher obviously because of their legacies and career accomplishments but again we are measuring this on peak and it's interesting that they're still so low because bill russell won mvp this season he was 18th in scoring and second in rebounding in the regular season Cousy was all nba first team and sixth in mvp voting but i will say regular season accomplishments were important in my rankings mvp finishing uh voting like that all nba teams all defensive teams those factors are important but the most important factors are playoff stats and performances in the finals so that is why some of the uh some of the people above will be higher than these guys um and honestly this comes back to how the celtics played basketball in this era a really slow-paced offense eighth in offensive rating out of eighth teams it's just how they played so their numbers aren't going to be uh, you know as as large as other guys um as for the playoff numbers bill russell averaged 19 points per game ninth he was first in rebounding at nearly 30 a game and koozie was at 16.7 points per game 12th in the playoffs but he led the playoffs uh he led the playoffs in assists per game in the finals though they defeated st louis in five games bill russell had the um had 28 rebounds per game the second most in his finals career and bob koozie the reason that i picked this this season was a little more balanced out than Russell and Kuzi. Russell carried Kuzi, I would say, in a few other finals. This one was a little more balanced out. Kuzi averaged his second most finals points per game in 1961 at 19.8, and his second most assist in his finals career at 10.6 per game. I will say, though, Bob Kuzi was never an efficient shooter at all, 36% from here. And honestly, it's really what held this duo back, I think, for me, is Bill Russell did not shoot well from the field. Bob Kuzi did not shoot well from the field. Um, 
And, and honestly, a little bit of error bias plays in here because I think you can certainly make the debate that they can be higher. Um, a little bit of error bias. They weren't a top-tier offense. Uh, obviously, that's how they played. That is why uh, this duo lands on my list because they won a championship and because they were so proficient. But just not really, I don't know, anything outstanding. And Bill Russell overshadows Bob Cousy a little more, in my opinion, all time. He didn't pick up his side as much. So I have this duo a few spots higher, but I want to clarify, this is for the 1960-61 season? Yes. Okay, so I chose a different year, and I'll get to that when I get there, but I think that there's a few reasons that this team, that this duo was a little bit too low. First of all, I don't think this is their best season. You talk about how the offense struggled this year. Obviously, the pace of play is ridiculously high, so they're still scoring 120 points a game, and Kuzi's inefficiency... That was just kind of par for the course in the 50s and really early 60s. Yeah, it's pretty funny that an all-time great shot 37% from the field in his career, but we know that that's how he was. And I just think at his peak, Kuzi was a top three offensive player in basketball, a deserved MVP candidate in 57. I actually have the 59 Celtics. I think that that team was a little bit more dominant in the finals, a little bit stronger on the offensive end, and also didn't have quite as strong of a supporting cast as they did maybe in 61. Now, it's still a loaded group, and I'll get to that, but I think that if you look at that 61 team, Heinsohn is a full established star at that point. Sam Jones is really coming into his own. Ramsey is an incredibly good player still. Bill Sharman is still a really great player. So maybe that takes away from the star power of the duo a little bit. So this is interesting to me because I think that if I had chosen this year, maybe I would have this duo here, but I just think Pete Cousy was a little bit better than this version of Cousy that you've chosen, and I think that that shows where I have them on my list. 1959 was second uh, for me. I just thought that because he scored a little more in the 61 finals that uh, that made, you know, he held up his end of the bargain a little more. So let me ask you then, though, because you mentioned the entire team, how did you differentiate between team success and pure duo success? Well, I think that when a duo carries a heavy, heavier load and the team has the same success, then you give a few bonus points to the duo. But I just think Kuzi was actually a more proficient scorer in 59. I think his playmaking was even at a higher level. And I will get to all of that when I get to that duo, which again is a few spots higher for me. My number 10 is Kareem and Oscar in 1971. And I had some painful omissions from this list to make room for these two, some really all-time great duos. But I sort of want to walk through how I got to this point. So... I would say the main advantage for this duo is that Kareem at this level is probably at his absolute peak. I would say averaging 32-16-3 in the regular season. He's MVP. He's second-team all-defense. He's a deterrent around the rim like almost nobody else in basketball, save Wilt. I would say he is an offensive savant like we have maybe never seen, arguably except for Wilt again at this point in league history. And then Oscar... His production isn't insane. He's 19 and a half, 6 and 8, 50% from the field, which is so ridiculous. And I think that that's one of the most underrated part about Oscar's game is his efficiency from the floor as a guard in this era was just incredible. He was still second team all NBA. Now, this is not peak Oscar Robertson, and I think that's an important distinction to be made. But also, I think part of the reason we saw the dip in production is he took a step back. He's coming off a season which he's averaging like 26 and 9, and now he's down to 19 and a half, 6 and 8. Part of that is you're making way for Kareem. You're no longer the superstar on a team that is not as relevant. And in the playoffs, Kareem goes for 20, 27 and 17. Oscar goes for 18, 5 and 9. In the finals, Kareem goes for 27 and 18 and a half. And of course, tremendously important is this is one of the greatest teams of all time. They were 66 and 16. They dropped two games in the playoffs. Bobby Dandridge is a really relevant part of this equation as well. As a third guy, he scored 19 a game in the playoffs. And if you're talking about sheer star power of a duo, maybe Robertson and Kareem get a little too much credit there because people neglect what Dandridge did and just that this was a great team defense, the best defense in basketball. But again, a lot of that is owed to Kareem. Honestly, though, this just comes down to 
which team do I trust to win the title most? And I will tell you, and maybe this will stir up some controversy right off the bat, my first two off this list are Dr. J and Moses and LeBron and D. Wade. And when it came down to who do I want to win a title, I will take the value of Oscar's playmaking, his all-around game, and the fact that Pete Kareem, this version, was better than any player on any of those other lists. So I will get more into the differences between them. This is a really tough decision for me, but I do have them at 10. I can already say this is going to be a chaotic list. Okay, interesting. I mean, I'm just from hearing your omissions, one, and then two, I have Kareem and Oscar way higher. Very interesting. Okay, should I touch on my omissions a little bit more, why I don't have them, or do you want to get there when you get there? I say we'll roll. Okay, because I am actually excited to give my rationale for those, but this is just the history of basketball, man. There are some crazy, crazy duos. Okay, number nine, who do you have? Number nine, and this may make me sound like a complete fool, I have Larry Bird and Kevin McHale, and this is from the year 1986. This is mostly because of how Kevin McHale performed in the finals and what Larry Bird did in the finals as well. Again, when it comes to these Celtic teams, a lot of them are great teams all around, but Bird and McHale, what they did in this finals really stood out. Bird averaged 24, 9.7, 9.5, and 2.7 steals per game. Only two players in NBA history have averaged a stat line such as so or better in the NBA finals. It's Larry Bird and LeBron James. Also in this finals, McHale goes from in the regular season, McHale averaged 21 points per game to in the playoffs, 24.9, and in the finals, 25.8 points per game. A lot of those Larry Bird passes helped him out. 8.5 boards, two two and a half blocks on 57% shooting in the finals. Finals for McHale. And then in the playoffs as an overall, Bird was 8th in scoring, McHale was 10th in scoring, uh, Bird was 8th in rebounding, McHale was 11th in rebounding, and Bird was 5th in uh, steal, no, excuse me, he was 5th in assists, 7th in steals on 51% and 41% shooting. Uh, they just, they balled out. Bird won MVP this season. He was all NBA first team. He was fourth in scoring this year. McHale was all defense second team and 13th in MVP voting. Again, I gauged a lot of MVP voting. If you were, a lot of these duos both ended up top five. That is why this duo is a little further down because well, obviously Bird was the great, one of the greatest players of his era. McHale wasn't, but still what they did in this playoff run, what he did in the finals and how far along McHale was defensively, I think them warranted them being on my list, especially with what Bird did you know, to hold up into his end of the bargain. Well, Logan, if you are crazy for having this duo at nine, then I am crazy for having this duo at nine because, in fact, I have Burden McHale from 1986 here as well. And this was tough to pick a specific year because I would say the peak of this duo was probably actually 1987 when McHale averaged 26 and 10 on 60% shooting from the field, was first team All-NBA. But the reason I have 1986 is, of course, McHale broke his foot ahead of the playoffs in 87, and although he still performed well, wasn't at his best, wasn't comparable to the 86 playoffs, so we don't have a full season of this duo at their peak dominance. But as you mentioned, this is the height of Larry's powers, third straight MVP season, 26-10-7 on 50-42-90 splits, and McHale... First team all defense and giving you 21-8-3, two blocks a game on 57% from the field. Just mind-blowing efficiency. These dudes were such beautiful complementary talents in that Larry could play out of the post at such a high level, play make out of there, make these beautiful contested shots, could also stretch the floor, could push and transition and play make there. And then McHale was just this unstoppable interior presence out of the post who, when he was fully motivated could get you 25 a night, and we saw that at his peak when he did it very consistently, and on the defensive end, could be that rim protector, could get out to the perimeter a little bit, and was just a really strong player on that end, and I think that when you talk about duos carrying 
somewhat equal loads. Now, obviously, this one is not at the top of that list, but McHale really did perform at an incredibly high level. You touched on the final stats where he gives you 26 a game, outscoring Larry, but playoffs as a whole, he's 25 and 9, 58% from the field. Larry, just ridiculous, 26, 9 and 8 on 52, 41, 93 in the playoffs. And of course, the utter dominance of this team, which I think is a top three basketball team of all time. They were 67 wins, 15 and 3 in the playoffs. They did have a loaded roster. DJ, Robert Parrish, Danny Ainge, Bill Walton winning sixth man of the year, even down to the Scott Wedmans and the Jerry Seekdings of the word of the world. Pretty good NBA players all in all. But I just think that this peak version of McHale was probably a better player than the Dr. J that ended up making the finals in 1983. And I assume you'll have them on your list. So I'll get into my thing for them a little bit more because they were certainly a tough omission. And I think that that really matters. And then of course, peak Larry Bird is maybe a top five player in basketball history, certainly top five on the offensive end. And I think that that showed in the way that this team played basketball. They moved, they had a bunch of dudes who could shoot. They also defended at a really high level and they just eviscerated the competition. And Although I think that for a lot of this era, this was a big three, maybe even a big four if you want to throw DJ in there, but I would say Parrish, a member of the big three. This year, these two guys really stood above the rest, and I think that that shows that we both have them on our list. Okay, let's move on. Number eight, who do you have? This was a tough one too, and I was surprised I left both of these guys so low. I have got Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen from 1993 at number eight on my list. Now, uh the reason I think you have to go with one of the early Pippen and Jordan teams because obviously Rodman isn't going to be second fiddle and Pippen and Jordan's numbers both go down significantly when Rodman comes to the team. That's naturally going to happen. So I ended up going with 1993 for one reason and one reason only because I think Scottie Pippen played his best season with Mike in 92. He was all defense first team. He was all NBA second team. He finished ninth in MVP voting. He shot his career high in the finals that year against Portland and he had his second most finals points per game uh, with 20.8 that year. But this came down to the best Michael Jordan season. And in those playoffs, he averaged 35 points per game, his career high on a championship team. Uh, he had the third best three-point percentage of his playoff career, 38.9% to go along with six boards and six assists. And then in the finals, of course, he had the most points per game in an a NBA Finals ever at 41. Um, he had eight and a half rebounds, his most boards of his finals career, and he shot over 50% from the field and 40% from deep. Pippen had his most points per game of his finals career, the most assists per game of his finals career, and the second most rebounds per game of his finals career. An interesting fact here, Carson, Pippen shot 54% from the free throw line in the series. Jordan shot 60% from the free throw line. I mean, absolutely abysmal. Those games shouldn't have been close as they were with the Suns. As for regular season stuff, Jordan finished third in MVP voting. He was all-NBA first team and all-defensive first team. Pippen was all-NBA third team and all-defensive first team. The reason that I have this duo so low is because, simply put, I think Jordan and Pippen had a really good defensive team around them, and other guys had to produce more at the offensive end and do a little more. Um... It was tough leaving these guys this low, but I just think other duos, just based on what those two did, did a little more than Jordan and Pippen. I'm not saying more than Jordan. It's almost impossible to do more than Jordan, what he did in these playoffs and these finals. The other guy did more than Scotty is what I'm getting at. Let me be clear about something right now. You are smoking that wacky tobacco, having them a number eight. And I understand that this is not a career accomplishment thing. And if it were, maybe they would be number one. They're not number one on my list. But I think that when you're talking about the two-way value these guys bring to the table, the complementary skill sets where you have the greatest scorer in basketball history who will will his team to victory time and again with great efficiency and playmaking and impact on the defensive end. And Scotty, who is capable of shutting down the opposing team's best offensive player and facilitating at such a high level. If you have Moses and Dr. J above this, I don't know who else you're going to have above this, but you're going to be wrong, and I will go in on why you're wrong. So did you go at the same year? 
No, I actually went with 1992. I agree with you that it has to be from their first three-peat, but the way that these teams were eviscerating people with Horace Grant, a very good NBA player, but by no means an all-timer, by any stretch of the imagination, eviscerating teams with him as their third player. Like, yes, this is a talented roster. BJ Armstrong is obviously a really high-level two-way player, but outside of that, man, Cartwright is old by this point. John Paxson never was really that good. He was a guy who could make a big shot, could knock shots down from the perimeter, but he's old at this point. This is a team with four good NBA players, and they were eviscerating people, and it's two guys at all-star level, two guys who are easily among the top 10 of their NBA players, and the greatest player of all time. Well, I, I do want to clarify, I, I did a lot of my rankings based on how they were compared to contemporaries, and I think the 93 team was a lot closer to losing that series than a lot of other squads, so maybe it was foolish of me to go with 93 instead of 92, but also in that same breath, I just think, I don't know, I think other duos were better among similar competition. I mean, you can call me crazy for that, Carson, but that's my take. I will, and I do disagree with you choosing 93. As I said, I went with 92. I think that that was the more convincingly dominant team throughout the entire season. Not as dominant in the playoffs because they did go seven against the Knicks in a scary season, but just two guys put together incredible campaigns throughout this season. And to me, again, it comes down to which duo am I taking if I'm trying to win a title. And if you're going to say that roster support is a case for or I should say against the incredible prowess of this duo, I will disagree because I think that we can find a number of teams that have more loaded supporting casts than the Bulls teams from the first three-peat time and again. I, I will have no trouble doing that. And I think that most teams on this list had more talented supporting casts. So I completely and utterly disagree. My number eight duo, and I'll be interested in seeing if you have these two at all, I have Jerry West and Wilt Chamberlain from 1972. And of course, this is not peak Jerry West and Wilt Chamberlain. If it were, we would have a top 15 player in basketball and a top six player in basketball on the same team. That would be something else. And the same goes for Oscar and Kareem. That just was not the peak version of Oscar, although it was probably peak Kareem. This case, it's not quite peaks for either of them. Jerry's 33, Wilt's 35. And yes, this was the best team that either of these guys ever played for. 69 wins. They dropped only three games in the playoffs. But they also had a loaded supporting cast. Goodrich averaging 26 a game. McMillan at 19 a game. Happy Harrison at 13 and 13. And still, this duo was incredible. Wilt was first team all defense. He was second team all NBA. He was third in MVP voting. Jerry was first team all defense. First team all NBA. Second in MVP voting. Jerry averaged 26, 4, and 10. Wilt, although he was just at 15 a game, still 19 and 4 on 65% from the field. But it's just, this is obviously not peak Wilt's value as a scorer. It may be peak Wilt defensively because he was so committed to that end of the floor. And in a lot of ways, that was the Wilt that drove winning more. If you go back to the 67 team, that was a team in which Wilt was the fourth leading scorer in the playoffs. And yet they were incredibly dominant because he was so committed to playing a little bit more unselfishly and to devoting himself to the defensive end. But when it comes down to it, in these playoffs, Jerry was 23-5-9 on 37.6% from the field. That's tied for a career playoff low in points per game. That's a career low in field goal percentage by 7%. Wilt was 15-21-3 on 56% from the field. And Goodrich was their leading playoff and leading finals scorer. And in the finals, Jerry West, who I think outside of probably Jordan... Shaq and LeBron, maybe the greatest finals performer ever, even though he only has the one title to his name. The dude just carried his team time and again. This is his worst final ever, 20-9 and nine on 32.5% for the field. And again, it's Goodrich at 26 a game. So this is two guys who, if they had united at the absolute peak of their powers, could be closer to number one on this list. They are often remembered more in that 
vein just because this was such a dominant team. And I think that people have this weird misconception. When I say people, I mean younger people who maybe don't have tremendous knowledge of NBA history that Wilt was a Laker, that he was at his best as a Laker or something, which he obviously wasn't. He was still a fantastic NBA player. But this duo, although very good, I can't really put them higher than this. So I'll be interested in seeing if you have them on here at all. Who do you have at number seven, though? I am one of those young people who have them higher. Interesting. Um, at number seven, uh, like I said, I'm crazy. I am not a madman, though. I'm not going to put Dr. J and Moses Malone crazy high. I have them at number seven here in 1983. And you can make the supporting cast debate between Pippen and Jordan. You can say that Mo Cheeks and Andrew Tony were better supporting castmates than what Jordan and Pippen had. Personally, though, I think in this one individual season... Dr. J, I guess this is more, this kind of goes against what I said at the beginning. Pippen performed better than Dr. J did in the finals. He, Moses carried Dr. J in the playoffs. and threw, I mean, Dr. J was really good. He finished fifth in MVP voting. He was all NBA first team, but he wasn't the same player that we saw in the regular season. He went from 21 points per game to 18 in the playoffs to 19. Not a significant drop, but a noticeable one from 51% shooting in the regular season, 47% in the finals. Uh, but Moses carried. He was MVP this season, all NBA first team. He, had, he was first in PER this this year, 24.5 points per game, fifth in the NBA that year, 15 and a half boards, first in the NBA that season on 50% shooting. In the playoffs, he was third in scoring at 26 points per game, uh, 15.8 boards, that's first in the playoffs, and 1.9 blocks per game, that was fifth. And in the finals, Moses put up 25.8, 18 boards, one and a half steals, one and a half blocks on 50% shooting. Again, this goes back to what I said with uh, Dr. J. I think Dr. J did more in the regular season. He finished higher in MVP voting. I just think for an individual season, they were a better duo as Carson begins to eviscerate me. Go ahead. I, that is exactly what I'm about to at least attempt to do. So I'm just trying to get this straight in my head. So at this point in their careers, because again, this is if we're taking the name value, these are two top 15 players of all time, right? Dr. J was not close to that at this point. Yes, he was first team All-NBA in the regular season. That to me is just a nod to how great of a career he had and how great of a team this was. Because at this point in their careers, Scotty to me, has equal value as a scorer to Dr. J. You can go back and watch Dr. J in 83. He's a really good player. He is not the same kind of mind-bending athlete that he was in 77 in that first finals run or in his MVP season in 1980. He's just not the same guy. So Scotty gives you as much value as a scorer. Scotty gives you infinitely more defensive value, infinitely more playmaking value. And so then it comes down to Michael Jordan versus Moses Malone. And you're, in my mind, that means you're taking Moses Malone by a significant amount over Michael Jordan, which I obviously could not disagree with more. And then... Even down to the supporting cast. Nice logical fallacy. Way to twist my words around, Carson. I'm just saying, from my perspective, if I think Scotty has that much more value than Dr. J, that means Moses much ha must have even a wider margin of value over Michael Jordan. The way I looked at this, in this individual season, Jordan was third in MVP voting. Not to say that he wasn't the best player in the league. He was. Moses was the best player in the league this season. He carried this roster. So... I guess if you based your argument on caliber of players around them, I would agree with you in Philadelphia. But as for pound for pound this season, I just think that this duo was better. They, and you want to talk about the added value that Scotty has defensively. The Sixers were a better defensive team. Okay, but personally, I don't think that speaks to an individual wing defender's value. We're talking about Julius Serving at 32 or Scottie Pippen at the peak of his powers defensively. But it was not conducive to better overall team defense. Well, it was conducive to an excellent all-time team defense. And also, I don't think you picked the best Bulls season, to be clear, because they coasted through this year a little more. They won 67 games with them, 95% sure the best defense in the league the year before this. Okay, so then, again, I just want to clarify. So are you going with the duo's best season? Because I would say that MJ by far had a better, much better postseason in 93 than 92. 
I'm absolutely going with the duo's best season. We're ranking duos here. Well, I know, but I would say that this season, just based on the duo, not based on team success, MJ and Pippen had a better year in 93. Okay, I disagree. I think they had a better year in 92, and I think that that contributed to the team's success. But I want to tackle one more thing here because I think that also the supporting, as- the supporting cast argument does favor the Sixers. Absolutely. You have Hall of Famer Bobby Jones, one of the best defensive players of this era. You have Mo Cheeks, one of the best playmakers and also a great defensive player of this era. And you have Andrew Toney, who I think in the playoffs you could have argued was more valuable to this team's success than Dr. J because that dude was lighting people up. He outscored Dr. J in the playoffs. He brought you more playmaking value. And I think it's close, but I don't think I have to argue that Tony was better than Dr. J because no one else approaches Scottie Pippen. And Moses Malone, even at the peak of his powers, does not approach Michael Jordan scoring 35 a game in the playoffs and eviscerating everybody in his path. So I strongly disagree. The reason I don't have Dr. J and Moses on my list is this was a fantastic team. I think that sometimes because of career accomplishments and because of how great of a team this was, we overrate what Dr. J really was. This was Moses and a group of really good players, Dr. J among them, probably still the second best player, but not by that much. So that's why I left this team off as hard as it was, because I think that as far as all-time great teams go, because they were a one-off, because they never had a campaign like this again, sometimes they get a little bit underrated because they were so dominant. I mean, they destroyed the Lakers. They destroyed everybody in their path, fo fo fo. but they're not quite there in my duo hierarchy. Okay, so my number seven. I just had Jerry and Wilt at number eight. Now, I have Elgin and Jerry from one decade earlier, 1962, at number seven. And of course, they are the only duo on this list of mine that does not have a title to their name. They lost seven finals together in total, so if that convinces you that they were a title caliber duo, I I hope that it does, because if it doesn't, I don't know what will. That is obviously the most losses that any duo has experienced in league history, and this season is actually the year that Elgin was enlisted in the military, so he was only playing on weekends. He played 48 games this season. But when he did play, this team was 37-11. and 11. That's a 63-win pace. And they lost in Game 7 of the Finals overtime in Game 7 of the Finals because Frank Selvey couldn't hit a shot in regulation to win them that game, and then they lost to a team that just had so much more talent top to bottom. But individually in this season, both these guys were first-team All-NBA. They were both top five in MVP voting. The offensive numbers... You can look at them and say they're slightly inflated because this was the fastest pace for a single season in NBA history. I'm pretty sure this is Wilt's 50-point season, Oscar's 30-point triple-double season, but Jerry's giving you 31-8 and 5.5 on 45% from the field. Really impressive efficiency for a guard at this point in time. Elgin is giving you 38-18.5 and 4.5, and in the playoffs, their production does not slip one bit. Elgin is 38.5, 18-3.5. West is 31.5, 7, 4.5. And nobody else scored 15 a game for this team in the playoffs. Selvi and Rudy LaRusso were all-stars, but I think that's just because the league was, there were only eight teams in the league at this point, so you had to take a certain amount of just good players to be all-stars. They weren't real stars by our traditional definition of the word. And then in the finals, you go up against a team with Russell, with Sam Jones, with Bob Cousy, with Heinsohn, with Satch Sanders, with Casey Jones, with Frank Ramsey, and they took that team to overtime in Game 7, Baylor averaged 41-18-4 and four in the finals. West averaged 31. I just think this is one of the most incredible offensive pairings we've ever had. Jerry was the kind of guy who could consistently get to the line, who could also knock down a jumper when he needed to. Elgin was similar as far as such an athletic freak that he preferred to operate in the interior, but had the skill to kill you from the mid-range as well. And 
just a special pairing that will never, ever get the credit that they are deserved because they could not win one title in all these cracks. But it's just not fair. It's not fair to compare the supporting cast they had to work with to the supporting cast that Russell and Kuzi had to work with. So honestly, as I'm saying this out loud, I'll spoil something. I have Russell and Kuzi one spot higher, and I don't know how I feel about that. I'll have to think it over. But because as an individual duo, I think these two may have been more impressive. I left Baylor and West off of my list just because, as you said, they didn't win a ring, and I felt it was disrespectful to teams that did uh, to have them higher. Although, like you said, all the numbers point to this team being on this list. It's unconscious. Elgin Baylor is one of three players in NBA history to average 40 points per game in a finals. Jerry West was right there with them. It's just a shame that they couldn't bring it home because if they did, man, they might be top five. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. I am trying, though, to not take such a binary approach to be like, this team won the title, they're better. This team didn't win the title, they're inferior. Because I just think that this duo was really, I mean, for a while, it was maybe the best that the league has ever seen. And I think that there's a strong case to be made that it's better than Jerry and Wilt. I think that it is better than Jerry and Wilt, even though they didn't get the title because of the difference in the supporting cast. So, awkward. Okay, so let's move on then. Who do you have at number six? Jerry and Wilt. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you hit on all the big points, Carson. Uh, this duo was obviously not at the peak of their powers, but this is the championship team. And I think uh, to a lot of the points that you made, uh, th- this was just a different stylistically played team. Uh, Wilt moved the rock a little more. He wasn't looking to score. Jerry was passing the rock a whole lot more. He was uh, first in playoff assists per game. Wilt was first in playoff rebounds per game. Again, they weren't the leading scorers on their team for the final. So, they had a better supporting cast. They had another third guy to go to. But this is the team that won the ring. I don't think this is the team that was at you know the height of their powers, the, the best duo from Wilt and Jerry West days. But again, they won the title, so this is the one that makes the list. Okay, so as I said, I have Russell and Cousy from 1959 at number six. And I think that obviously there are a number of Russell and duos that you could have chosen. Russell and Sam Jones was a really tough omission for my list in 65 when Sam was at his peak as a scorer, just because when you have a top five player in basketball and a dude who can fill it up like that, that's intriguing. Even maybe Russell and Havlicek towards the end of their time, although Havlicek really hit his peak after Russell had retired. But this to me is the best pair of them all because Kuzi was a league MVP when the league first started the award in 56-57. This is a couple years removed from that. Russell is, though, also a couple years into his career now and is more firmly in his prime. Both these guys were top four in MVP voting. Both of them were first-team All-NBA. Russell was MVP, and Kuzi gave you 25.5 and and 8.5. Russell gave you 17, 23, and 3. And in the playoffs, I think that this was just outstanding production from these two. Kuzi was 19.5, 7, and 11. And just for context on how brilliant of a passer Bob Kuzi was, second-best mark for assists per game in the playoffs in the league was six. He is nearly doubling what anyone else is doing because they were much stricter with assists back then. And I just want to say, for anybody who craps on Bob Cousy and points to him as the example of how far basketball has come and haha, look at how bad those guys were. There's a few things you don't understand. First of all, how strict the league rules were about carrying. The reason that he's dribbling with his palms so firmly on top of the ball is because you couldn't do any of that cool turn the ball over nice crossover stuff you have you had to have firm control you had to be above the ball at all times so that's why he dribbles like that but dude was a sensational passer go watch him there's a reason they called him Houdini of the hardwood like yeah sometimes it's throwing weird shots over his head that don't make sense but a lot of the time it's just incredible feel passing vision touch delivery all of that he had so he's easily the best passer of this era and compared to his peers right up there is the greatest passers of all time. And then Russell was 15 and a half, 28 and three and a half. And of course, 
the greatest defensive player of all time, in my opinion, impacted team defense like nobody else, drove this to be the greatest defense of all time as far as this era of Celtics basketball. And in the playoffs, they beat the Nationals in seven. They swept the Lakers. They did have, as I mentioned, a really strong supporting cast, Heinsohn, Ramsey, Sharman, a young Sam Jones. But when you have the best facilitator and a top three offensive player in the game in Kuzi, and then the greatest defensive player of all time, I just think that's a really imposing pairing. And I think that Kuzi is sometimes underrated because he was that special on the offensive end of the ball. All right, let's get into the top five now. Who do you have fifth? At number five, I have Shaq and Kobe from 2002. And now I fully understand why someone would take 2001. Kobe and Shaq were both top five in playoff points per game that season. But I thought their finals performance in 2002 was just a little more impressive. They ended up sweeping the Nets. Shaq averaged 36, the second highest mark of his finals career. 12 and a half boards, 3.8 assists on 59% shooting. Kobe averaged 26.8, the highest of any finals with Shaq. 5.8 rebounds per game, 5.3 assists per game on 51% shooting from the field and 54.5% shooting from deep in the playoffs as a whole. Shaq was third in points per game, fifth in rebounds per game. Kobe was sixth in points per game, his second highest playoff total, only to 0-2 with Shaq, and he had the second highest uh, three-point percentage of his playoff career. In the regular season, Shaq ended up being third in MVP voting. He was All-NBA first team, second in overall points per game, first in field goal percentage. In the regular season, Kobe was All-NBA first team, All-Defensive second team, and finished fifth in MVP voting. Uh, I just felt with how dominant they performed in the the finals, yes, against a drastically inferior Nets team. That being said, uh, they were both top five in MVP voting. They were clearly the best duo uh, of this era, and uh, I think if we're with where my ranking is of all time. Okay, this is interesting. We are going to disagree so much on this list because they are not in my top 10. I'm kidding. They're, they're a few spots higher. I did not leave Shaq and Kobe out of my top 10. I want to clarify one thing. I made a mistake. Russell actually didn't win the MVP in 59. He won it in 58 and obviously four other times. And 61. And 61. Okay, Logan, congratulations. You had the better choice for this season. I think you have these guys way too low. And the reason for that is, I mean, they were two of the three best players in basketball at this point. They were completely unbeatable at their peak when they actually liked each other, when they were gelling that way. And there's a reason that they three-peated in such utterly dominant fashion when their supporting cast was one of the weakest of any group of title teams in NBA history, certainly of any dynasty in NBA history. So, I'll go even more into that. I also, I understand picking 2002 purely because it was their best collective finals. I do not think it was their best collective season though, and I will get into that as well, but I just think you're too low on that duo. However, Logan, this might be my spiciest take. I don't actually know. I have another Lakers duo at number five, another modern Lakers duo, LeBron and AD from this past season. And I think that obviously it's a little bit jarring, but remember, we're not going on resume here. We're just going on peak value. And you'd be hard pressed to convince me that having two of, in my opinion, the four best players in basketball with this kind of two-way value, with LeBron capable of at any moment stepping up and being one of the best closers in basketball with this refined jump shot, being one of the three best passers in basketball, facilitating at such a high level, out of the post, from the perimeter, in penetration situations. We know what LeBron just did. We all just saw it. He averaged 28, 11, and 9 in the playoffs on 56, 37, 72 splits, and AD was right alongside him. For much of the playoffs was the established alpha dog scorer of this team. Gave you 28, 10, 3 and a half on equally ridiculous efficiency. 57, 38, 83 splits. So these dudes shot 56 and 57% from the field. They were bruising for this entire year. They were physically overpowering. 
People couldn't stop them from getting to the line. People couldn't stop them from getting where they wanted to, except for the exception of P.J. Tucker in that Rockard series. And guess what? AD just lit him up by killing him with post fades and doing a little bit more from the perimeter. It's the best version of AD we've ever seen because of how proficient he was shooting the ball. It was playoff LeBron, and we know what that is. But even in the regular season, they were a highly motivated team that had the pedals to the metal at all times. LeBron was 25-8-10. AD was 26-9-3, 2.3 blocks per game. Both were first-team All-NBA. AD was first-team All-Defense. I think should have been Defensive Player of the Year. His defense was game-changing in the playoffs. And, of course, I just talked about how miserable the Kobe Shaq supporting cast was by title standards. This team won a title convincingly with KCP as their third-leading playoff scorer at 10.7 points per game with Rajon Rondo, who for much of the season I thought should not have been getting minutes for this team, being probably their third-best player, and they only lose five games. And yes, maybe they didn't have the toughest route to a title, but this team proved maybe as much or more than any team in NBA history that two guys alone are enough to carry a team to a title because they did it, and they did it in a dominant fashion. So, yes, I am taking these guys in my top five. If that's spicy, I got something. I'm packing a punch. Okay, I'm very interested in where this is headed then. Let's move on to number four. Who do you have, Logan? Number four, I have another Lakers duo, and that is Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in 1985. Uh, in the regular season, uh, and this was tough. I We talked about this last night, how hard it was to pick a distinct season for this duo. And it was because they just they just didn't overlap at, at the peaks. So it was tough to distinct, distinguish between where to go. I, the ultimate factor for me in going with 85 was because of how they performed in the finals. Kareem was still putting up 25 points per game at 25.7 in the finals. Nine boards, 5.2 assists. These are up from his numbers in the regular season of 22 and in the playoffs overall at 21.9. He was 15 in playoff scoring. Uh, but Magic carried a really heavy load in this series too. 14 assists per game in the finals. That is a finals career high for him and an NBA finals record in the regular season. He was second in assists per game as he always Always is 56% from the field. Magic finished second in MVP voting. He was all NBA first team. Kareem finished fourth in MVP voting. He was all NBA second team. Uh, this duo was just unconscious. They have one of the best defenses in the league, uh, the number one offense in the NBA. Uh, I think at their height in this season, they were the best duo. I couldn't put them any higher, though, just because I feel like at this point in time, I don't think they were the best two players in the league when you can make an argument for all three t- duos ahead of them. I think you can make a case that they were. Interesting. Okay. I think you could make that case for Kobe and Shaq and you had them fifth. But interesting. I think that you have touched on what's difficult about this is when Magic comes into the league as a 20-year-old, Kareem is 32. So Kareem's prime is 71 to 80, right when Magic comes into the league. Magic's prime, his best season is 87. His prime probably is that 85 to 89 range. So they just didn't overlap in that respect. If you are taking the two best players to ever play together, I think it's Magic and Kareem. They're two of my top four basketball players of all time, but that doesn't mean we got the absolute best version of them. I still have them higher, though. I picked a different season than you, and I think that I can make a stronger case for that season, actually. 85, though, was the second one that I thought of because, of course, that was a great campaign for them. It's just Kareem at 37. Yeah, he was still a bucket. The defensive value wasn't there, and he's giving you 22 a game or so, and to me, just the fact that he was still dominant in the finals doesn't redeem that season as a whole. Okay, So now we are getting into the tier that, to me, I was not going to move anybody out of. My top four were as firm as can be. Four and three, I thought about switching, but I have Kevin Durant and Steph Curry from 2017 here. And offensively, they make a case as maybe the greatest pair of all time. They led this team to have the second best offensive rating of all time at the conclusion of this season. And in the regular season, 
They won 67 games. We know how dominant this team was. KD gave you 25, 8, and 5 on just disgusting efficiency. 54% from the field, 37.5% from three, 87.5% from the line. Steph gave you 25, 4.5, and 6.5 on 47, 41, 90 splits. And of course, we know that... These dudes have the ultimate complementary offensive skill sets where it's this fluid, moving, incredible shooting pair. They just played off of each other so well. And at times, maybe Katie took the team out of its incredible ball movement a little bit, but it was just so he could step up and be the best closer in basketball and the most versatile scorer of all time. And can you really hold that against him? I don't know. He also showed a lot of defensive value this season that maybe we hadn't seen from him in years past. And I think that that is significant, but... Even more impressive than the 67-win regular season, which was tremendous, and all of the great things that these guys did throughout that entire season when they were both fully healthy, which was kind of an exception throughout their tenure together. I guess they weren't both fully healthy. KD missed 20 games, but they were relatively healthy. It's the playoffs where KD gives you 28.5, 8-4 on 56-44-89 splits. Steph gives you 28-6-7 on 48-42-90 splits. And then the finals Katie gives you 35, 8, and 5.5 and on 55.5, and 47.5, 93 splits. Steph gives you 27, 8, and 9.5 and on 44, 39, 90 splits. You're telling me two guys can give me 28 plus for the playoffs. One of them will be the best scorer in basketball. The other one will have this tremendous gravity that doesn't even show up on the stat sheet. Will also be this brilliant facilitator, this incredibly unselfish player. If you're making case for purely best offensive duo, I think they're right up there. I still think that there were other duos that were more completely unstoppable. And I will say that the incredible supporting cast here certainly is not to the detriment of this duo, but we saw other duos do more with less, clearly. And maybe you can't hold that against Steph and Katie, but I think that it is maybe something that works in favor of some of the other pairings. And of course, it feels like if this team had been healthy for three seasons, they would have won the title every year, but this was the best they ever were by far, and it's still so crazy that Steph doesn't have a finals MVP because both this year's finals and the next year's finals, he was incredible, just incredible, and couldn't get the finals MVP because there was a guy who was slightly more incredible alongside him, but I think they were certainly two of the five best players in basketball this season, maybe two of the three best players in basketball, and that's why they have to be in my top four. Yeah, and this will flow nicely because I have them at number three on my list. You say that you think they could be the off, the best, the greatest offensive duo of all time. I think they are. I don't think it's close. I think you can make a debate for Shaq and Kobe, but with what shooting they, how, how dominant they are as shooters and what they provide from deep, I think that trenches everything else. But you touched it. Uh, in the finals, KD put up 55, 47%, and 92%. It is literally the greatest offensive performance, I think, in the finals of all time in the modern era. And for comparison in the playoffs with how KD shot, only four players in NBA history have shot as well as KD did in this playoff run with as many attempts and games. Kevin Love, Chauncey Billups, Jason Richardson, and Ray Allen. That's a short list. A a, a bit of a strange one, but short list. KD shot better than all of them. Um, Steph had his second highest field goal percentage of his finals career, uh, the highest assist per game of his finals career. That speaks to KD's value as a spot-up shooter. Um, Steph and KD were both all NBA second team this year. Steph coming off of two MVP seasons, finished sixth in MVP voting. KD finished ninth in MVP voting. Like I said, I think they're the greatest offensive duo of all time, and I think they have to be top five in any list. So... The duo that I have third, who I thought that you were very, very disrespectful to earlier, is Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan from 1992. And it was tough for me to choose between them and Katie and Steph because I think that Steph, as a second guy, is certainly 
a level above Scotty. Now, it's maybe not slightly enough to make up the gap between MJ and KD, and that's why I have this duo slightly higher, because when it comes down to a gut feeling, who am I taking to win me a title? MJ, Scotty, and whoever else, or KD, Steph, and whoever else, I'm going to take MJ and Scotty, and the fact that they did it six straight times certainly does help, even though we are choosing just their absolute peak season. This year, you have Scotty, first team all defense, second team all NBA, it was a step up from the previous year, although I actually did consider 1991 because I think part of the reason Scotty wasn't given an All-NBA nod is just because the league is so much about you have to prove to people that you can do it and then they just start giving you the acknowledgement, especially back then. I think that Scotty was already playing at an All-NBA level, but you have that out of him. You have MJ, he's MVP, he's first-team All-NBA, he's first-team All-Defense, and as I mentioned, this regular season team was dominant, 67-15. and 15. Scotty gave you 21-8-7, and seven, two steals per game on 51% from the field. MJ gave you 36.5-6, and 2.3 steals per game on 52% from the field. Ridiculous efficiency in offensive production. And then in the playoffs, Scotty gave you 19.5-9-7 and seven, and two steals per game. MJ gave you 34 and a half, six and six and two steals per game. And we know what he was doing in finals at this point in his career. It's just the most phenomenal score that we've ever seen in basketball. And as I said earlier, I think this is the greatest defensive pairing of all time. And I think that they, they complemented each other. Obviously you have these guys a little more comfortable with the triangle at this point in 1991, you could argue that MJ was still going out of it a little bit more. And now they have that system firmly entrenched. They have absolute faith in it. And it was just unstoppable. And this duo was driving that. We know what Scotty was capable of doing without MJ in the 94 and most of the 95 seasons when he was incredible as a single offensive engine, as that kind of playmaker who could step up and also get you 25 a game. Now, I don't think Scotty's ceiling compares to the second best guy in the two duos that I have above these two. I don't think he even comes close, actually. And that's why I have them third. But I think the MJ factor alone makes it impossible for me to leave this team out of the top four. And Scotty was incredible. He may not be a top 10 player of all time. He may not be a top 15 player of all time, but he's certainly a top 30 player of all time. And yeah, maybe Steph's a little higher up than Scotty all time. In fact, I think in my rankings he is, but that doesn't take away from the fact that Michael Jordan was at the peak of his powers at this point. And Scotty was at the peak of his powers as well. And as I mentioned, when it comes to supporting casts, this team's wasn't overwhelmingly strong considering the standard of basketball that they played on a night to night basis, which was incredibly dominant at an all-time level. So that's why I have them so high. Let's get into the top two now. Who do you have second? At number two, I have Oscar Robertson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, Carson, you broke down the case earlier, and the reason that maybe I overlooked, uh, Bob Dandridge did put up 18, John McLaughlin was putting up 15, and Greg Smith was putting up 12 per game. Uh, a lot of these teams just don't have the supporting cast that this duo does. But team-wise, and I guess which is why what I overlooked a little bit, this is one of the most dominant teams of all time. 66 and 16, they were, they were first in offensive rating, first in defensive rating. Carson, do you want to hear this team's regular uh, regular season point differential? Yes. Plus 1,005. I'm unconscious. They were plus 203 in the playoffs, plus 49 in the finals. Kareem uh, won the MVP this season. He was All-NBA first team, All-Defensive second team, averaging 31.7 points per game, most in the league, 16 boards, fourth in the league. He was number one in PER. Uh, as for the finals go, Kareem had his best rebounding per game mark of his finals career and his highest field goal percentage of his finals career, while Oscar was putting up 24, 5, and 9.5 and on 52% shooting. Uh, you made the case against that they had a better supporting cast, but Purely as a duo, I still think this is one of the greatest offensive and defensive duos of all time. Well, I don't think it's just that they had a better supporting cast. Because they had a good supporting cast, but so do a number of teams on this list. For example, the Warriors' supporting cast was significantly better than this Bucks team that was as dominant, I would say. 
the thing to me with this is just the contributions between the two players are a little lopsided. And Kareem was so incredibly dominant on a night-to-night basis, as I've said, at the peak of his powers. And Oscar just wasn't there anymore. He had missed the playoffs in the previous few seasons because he couldn't really carry that team on his own to that level of success. And I think that that showed when he said, okay, I'm 32 now and I'm willing to take a slightly reduced role on a different team to go win a title because I know I'm not the same player that I once was. And if you just look at his playoff production, it's 18-5-9. That's really good, obviously. Regular season production is pretty similar. But it's not the Oscar that we saw who was averaging a 30-point triple-double, or it's not the Oscar we saw even a couple years prior who was giving you 29-6-10. I just think this was kind of old Oscar. It's still really good Oscar, still second-team All-NBA Oscar, but not top 20 player of all time Oscar like he was at his absolute peak. And that, to me, is the biggest difference. This is a great duo, but I just don't think that Oscar was as good as maybe you're giving him credit for as, as being at this point in his career. My number two, though, is another duo that involves Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and an exceptional point guard, and that is obviously Magic and Kareem. I ended up choosing 1980, and as I mentioned, I considered that I considered 1985 because both of them were top four in MVP voting that year. Magic was more fully in his prime, and Kareem's still a beast, as we talked about. But for 37-year-old Kareem scoring 22 a game, for all the reasons that I laid out earlier, I ended up going with 1980. When Kareem was still unequivocally the best player in basketball, he's MVP, he's first-team All-NBA, he's first-team All-Defense, and Magic wasn't in his prime, obviously. He's a rookie. He wasn't All-NBA. He was still sharing ball-handling duties with Norm Norm Nixon at this point in his career, but... I think the difference between this Kareem and Kareem in five years and what Magic did in these playoffs, which is obviously immortalized in history, that makes this year the choice for me. So just looking at their production, regular season Kareem was 25, 11, and four and a half, 3.4 blocks per game, 60% shooting. Magic was 18, 8, and 7, 2.4 steals per game, 53% shooting. But in the playoffs is where both these dudes really kicked into gear and took it up another level. Kareem, 32, 12, and 3, four blocks per game, 57% from the field, maybe the most dominant version of a two-way big man that we've ever seen in basketball at this point of his career, just completely unstoppable. Magic was 18, 10 and a half, nine and a half, three steals per game, 52% from the field. And then in the finals, even better than the playoffs, Kareem, 33.4, 13.6, 3.2 assists, 4.6 blocks per game when he's healthy. And then of course he goes out, who comes in to finish off the series in game six? Magic with of course the 42 15 and 7 game. He goes for in the finals as a whole 21 and a half, 11 and 9 on 57% from the field. This is tough because I think Magic is damn near the best offensive player of all time. I think you could argue he is when you just look at the fact that he carried all of those 80s Lakers teams to be the among the best offenses of all time, that he was to me the greatest passer of all time, the kind of scoring value he brought out of the post and just getting into the paint when he's at his best. And yes, he wasn't fully in that version yet. This is rookie magic, but he still showed his offensive versatility, his brilliant playmaking, his ability to be a defensive playmaker with the three steals per game in the playoffs, and his just takeover ability that was utterly special. And I think that when I compare this duo to Scotty and MJ, the difference is one guy could literally just go win you a title. And even though it's rookie magic, even though it's not three-time MVP three-time finals MVP magic, well, it's one-time finals MVP magic, he still went out there and single-handedly won them a title, playing in a role that wasn't even what he was most used to. So to me, as far as career accomplishments, this duo's 
probably top two all time. And as far as peak, I also think they're top two of all time, even though they didn't overlap at each of their absolute apexes. I want to run that back for a second. So you would take Magic, now this is purely offensive, over MJ. Well, I said damn near. So I'm not positive, but I think that if you look through the history of the game of basketball, there is probably more value in the guys who elevate their teammates at that level. I don't know, though, because I think that LeBron, Magic, MJ, they're certainly the top three to me. And I think that also MJ showed that he could be that incredible playmaker. He showed it against the Lakers in 91 when he averaged 11 a game in that series and is making these unbelievable passes. So maybe not, but he's in my top three offensively. He's in my top four, period. Kareem is my number three. Magic is my number four. That's how special these two dudes were. So even though it wasn't each of their absolute peaks, I mean, what more can you ask from a guy than what Rookie Magic did this season? It's remembered as one of the greatest playoff performances ever, and it wasn't the best playoff performance on his own team because Kareem was just in absolute assassin mode and was doing things that maybe nobody else in the history of basketball could have done. So that's why I have them second. Number one, who do you have? Yeah, if you see where this was leading... I think the greatest duo of all time is LeBron James and Anthony Davis. I think we saw it last year. I just don't think in the history of the NBA we have ever seen the best offensive player in the NBA play alongside the best defensive player in the NBA. Anthony Davis was robbed of Defensive Player of the Year last year. LeBron James was robbed of MVP. LeBron finished second in MVP voting. AD finished second in Depoy voting. They were both, oh, excuse me, AD was all all NBA first team, all defensive first team. LeBron was all NBA first team. But I think both of those points are accentuated by the supporting cast that they had, as you mentioned. In the regular season, their second leading scorers after them, Kyle Kuzma and Deion Waiters in the playoffs, as you said, Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Rajon Rondo. This championship team had one of the worst supporting casts of all time, and it simply didn't matter because they had the best offensive player on the planet and the best defensive player on the planet. In the playoffs, LeBron, 27 and a half. Dude, that's what's so crazy. LeBron didn't lead this team in playoff points per game. AD did. That's nuts. LeBron has never had a teammate this good. And as you said earlier in the episode, Carson, I tried to make the case for D-Wade. There's just not one to be made. D-Wade and LeBron just never crossed at the apexes. That's why it's so beautiful to see LeBron at maybe at the end of his prime, towards it, playing with a player at his absolute peak defensively and as a rim runner and Anthony Davis. And LeBron in the finals was just as great at any other point in his career. 29.8 points per game and 11.8 boards, 8.5 assists on 59% shooting. That is the highest of any finals uh, series in LeBron's career on with 41% shooting from behind the arc. That's second in his finals career. And then again, AD in his only finals, 25 points per game, 10.5 boards, 3.5 assists, 2 blocks, 57% shooting. I'm going to say it again, the best offensive player in the league and the best defensive player in the league. It just doesn't get better than that. Okay, interesting. Look, I think very highly of this duo. Obviously, I had them fifth on my list. It's tough for me to make a case for them over the guys that I had above them. And I think that when you're talking about Kareem and Magic, as I just made the case, maybe the two best offensive players in basketball at this point playing together. And Kareem was also maybe the best defensive player in basketball at this specific point in time. I think that Scotty and MJ, obviously... That's an interesting comparison because in some ways there are similarities where Scotty and AD bring you that same defensive value. I just think MJ was at his absolute peak at this point. I think AD brings you more defensive value than Scotty. Okay, that's interesting. I think that he probably does as well, actually, because he's that interior presence. I still think, though, I don't think AD was the best defender on the planet last season. I think he should have won deep point, but I think when push came to shove, I would still take Gobert over him. I just think the dude has a different level of impact on the game. It's close enough, though, so I will give you that point. Didn't Giannis win deep play? Yeah, but I'm just saying that I still th- I don't think Giannis is, he's not even in the conversation to me. I would say that he's a guy who got a little bit overrated on that end because of his playmaking contributions. 
to me, number one is Kobe and Shaq. And I think that at the absolute peak of their powers, which to me is in 2001, it's the most imposing perimeter and interior attack ever. It's the rare instance of two guys linking up each at the peak of their powers. And yes, there's a case to be made that actually the 2008 to 2010 range was the real peak for Kobe, but I think that on the defensive end, he peaked in this era. And Shaq, this is his absolute peak for sure. And I think that you have the best player in basketball for 44 minutes in Shaq, unequivocally the best player in basketball at this point, and then the best closer in basketball alongside him, who's also a top three player. And this year, it totally clicked. Now, they didn't care about defense in the regular season, so they were 21st in defensive rating, which is why they won 56 games as opposed to 67 the year prior, but offensively, they were still incredible. Kobe was 28 and a half, six and five. Shaq was 29, 13 and four. They're both all defense. Shaq is first team All-NBA, Kobe second team All-NBA. They're both top four in scoring, and their third leading guy, was Derek Fisher at 11.5 points per game. And then in the playoffs, you can give credit to AD and LeBron for being convincing in a title run. And in fact, I did with a pretty weak supporting cast in the scope of things. But there's a difference between being convincing against a relatively easy path to the title because let's be honest, beating the Denver Nuggets in the conference finals and the Heat in the finals, a banged up Heat team, that's not a traditional path to the title. Now, I don't think that should be tremendously held against them. But when you're comparing it to what Kobe and Shaq did, going 15-1, and one, Kobe averages 29 and a half, seven and a half, and six on 47% shooting. Shaq averages 30, 15, and three in 2.4 blocks per game on over 55% shooting. They're both top five in playoff points per game. They contribute 57.8% of their team's total scoring. 57.8%, Logan. This is in the slowest era in basketball history. And these dudes are both putting up 30. Their third leading scorer was, again, Derek Fisher at 13 points per game. And I just want to take this series by series because... They are blowing out really high caliber teams because of two guys. They swept the 50-win Blazers with Damon Stoudemire, Steve Smith, with Rasheed Wallace, Arvita Sabonis, and an old Scottie Pippen. Shaq averages 27 and 16. Kobe averages 25, 4 and 8. They swept the 55-win Kings, which was just their conference finals team from the next season that would really challenge the Lakers without Mike Bibby. Shaq averages 33 and 17. Kobe averages 35, 9 and 4. They swept the 58-win Spurs. Shaq averages 27 and 13. Kobe averages 33, 7 and 7 on 51% from the field. And then in the finals, with nobody else averaging 10 points per game, Shaq gives you 33, 16, and 5, 3.4 blocks per game. Kobe gives you 25, 8, and 6. You just don't win titles with Derek Fisher and Rick Fox as your third and fourth guys. And you could say the same for KCP and, and Rondo, right? But you certainly don't go 15 and 1 in the playoffs and blow away the competition like these two did. I just think they're on a different level. These are two top 10 players of all time who connected at effectively the peaks of their powers. I do not think AD is comparable to Kobe. I honestly don't think that this version of LeBron that we just saw is as good as Shaq was at this point in his career. When he was committed on the defensive end, he was maybe the most imposing rim protector in basketball. Now, he was flat-footed a lot. He wasn't always committed. But on the offensive end, it was like nothing we've ever seen before. He effortlessly averaged basically 35 and 15 for three straight finals. That to me is even better than what we saw from LeBron last season, this absolute peak version of Shaq. So I disagree with your choice. You'll take peak Shaq and I get peak LeBron? This was not peak LeBron that we saw last year. This was really, this was close LeBron. Okay, well, I'll take that LeBron. You can have Shaq. Okay, good. And I think that we'll both, we'll both be happy with our with what we're left with. You know, I think you're disrespecting Rick Fox, though. I'm not letting this slander be tolerated. He put up 10 points per game in those playoffs, Carson. I mean, he certainly did, and I think he's had a good career doing some NBA TV and some movie work. 
Realistically, though, I have to say, comparative to like the the teams that the Lakers beat last season, how difficult do you think this run was for Shaq and Kobe? Because I think I think the Kings and Spurs are really tough opponents, but I think the Blazers and Sixers are kind of pushovers. I disagree. This is a Blazers team that the year before this pushed them in the Western Conference Finals and had them on their toes for a second. This is a really good Trailblazers team, in my opinion. And yeah, maybe they weren't quite the same team that they were the year before that just because they were obviously old, but still a really good basketball team overall. And I think it's certainly a tougher path than what the Lakers just went through. I will say, I'm thinking over the Shaq versus LeBron thing. I don't know if I would actually take Shaq over LeBron. If I'm starting a team, I'll take LeBron because of how much he elevates everybody else. If I have a Kobe, if I have that perimeter guy, give me Shaq because we've never had an interior presence like that in the history of basketball like Shaq was at this point. It was just flip a switch and completely unstoppable. And when you have that kind of closer, you know, there's there's no way to stop it. There's no hack of Shaq. There's no way to take them out of this game. It's just good night. This thing is over. So I just think it's a different level of unstoppability. But that's a really interesting choice. Are you still feeling like you made the right call with LeBron and AD? Yes. I like it. It's bold, and I think that they certainly belong up there, and they're probably going to repeat. I don't see it going many other ways. I suppose it's possible that something trips up, but with a better team, with those two dudes still, presumably when they're motivated at the same level, it's something special, and it's I mean, it's just an incredible list of options that we have to choose from here. I think that's what it speaks to. So, in honor of that incredible list, let's talk about some of the toughest omissions. I have like 12 honorable mentions written down, but why don't you start off with some of the toughest cuts for you? So as I mentioned earlier, the toughest one for me was leaving off Baylor and West. They didn't capture a title. So ultimately at the end of the day, I didn't feel too bad. The second one, and I really wanted to fit this duo on my list, Hakeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler in 1995. Now this is an interesting team just because of what they did with Drexler in the regular season. This team went 17 and 18 with Clyde. Without him, they were 30 and 17. But when the playoffs came around, they were 15 and 7 with Clyde in the lineup. They weren't overly dominant in the regular season. But when when it became playoff time, also, here's another interesting fact. Hakeem Olajuwon put up 3.4 blocks per game, 1.8 steals per game, and he didn't make an all-defense team this year. They just left him completely off. In the playoffs, though, this duo was dominant. Uh, Hakeem was putting up 33 points per game, the most in the playoffs. Uh, 10.5 boards per game, ninth, 2.8 blocks. That's third. Clyde uh, had the ninth most playoff points per game at 20.5, and, and then 1.5 steals per game, seventh. But in the finals, Hakeem, again, 32.8 points per game, 11.5 boards. Uh, this duo was dominant. Uh, the next omission was uh, LeBron and D-Wade, again, I touched on earlier, though, they just didn't cross over at the right time. If they if it had been 2006, 2008, yeah, you can make a case, but it just didn't line up like that. I want to talk about those two for a second, because I think that for people of our generation in particular, when you look at this list and there's no D-Wade and LeBron, you might be a little bit perplexed. Here's what it came down to for me. If I was going to choose a year of these two, it was going to be 2011, because after that, D-Wade just was not the same the way that he was. In 2011, he was second team all league, still gave you 25 and a half a game and was really just a sensational player to watch. And in the playoffs, gave you 24 and a half, seven, four and a half on 48 and a half percent from the field. It was an incredible campaign. The thing is, obviously this team didn't win the title. And you can point to that and say, okay, that doesn't fall on this duo, but I think it does. I don't think it falls on Dwayne Wade. I think it falls on LeBron, who obviously we know about the finals collapse and on the playoffs as a whole, gives you 23 a game. It's just the reason that I was able to leave them off is I was able to find peace with the fact that LeBron in this version 
probably couldn't have won a title like this. He had just two glaring weaknesses in his game. And yeah, you can say that maybe if the Mavs hadn't exposed it, they still would have gotten by without it. But yes, this is a weaker supporting cast than they had in following years. But also, this is a weaker LeBron. And so that paired with the fact that they didn't get it done made this a little bit easier on me because I'm not going to go 2012 D-Wade or 2013 D-Wade. It's just not the same player. And so that was actually pretty easy for me. Okay. I'll read off some of my other toughest cuts. Dr. J and Moses was probably my number one toughest cut. Actually, I would say certainly. Russell and Sam Jones, who I hinted at just because Sam Jones was so great in 65. Malone and Stockton, of course. I chose 92 as their peak season, but the reason that if you're doing a list of career accomplishments, it probably, I mean, they might be top five because they did this together for almost two decades at a really high level. I have Wilton Hal Greer from 1967 because Greer was just on another level. I have, I want to talk about this one with you briefly, Tony Parker and Tim Duncan from 2007. Tony Parker was really good in 2007. It just so happens that when Parker goes up, Tim Duncan was averaging 18 points a game in the finals. So if they had, again, if they had crossed over, I think at the peak, like it was the same reason I couldn't put Duncan and uh, Robinson on my list because Robinson was averaging eight points a game when they won their finals together. Right. Well, in 99, Robinson was better than that, but he still wasn't peak Robinson. I actually, for them, as which was also one of my honorable mentions, I had 98, which they didn't win the title, but it was just Robinson was a better version of himself, I would say. Parker and Duncan, well, they're a tough cut. And when it comes to career accomplishments, again, they're right up there. I just think Tony Parker as a second guy compared to everybody else on my list doesn't quite compare. For example, I have Oscar Robertson along with a top three player of all time in my 10 spot. So unfortunately, I couldn't quite put them there. I have uh, Willis Reed and Clyde Frazier from 1970 because of course they won two titles together. 70, they were a better duo in my opinion. I have Shaq and D. Wade in 06. This one was a relatively easy cut just because Shaq wasn't at his peak anymore. D-Wade was insane, though. I have Havlicek and Cowens in 73. They won two titles together. I have Akeem and Clyde, of course, because they won the title together. And I have Isaiah and Joe Dumars in 89 because, of course, they won two titles together. So that's just how it is in NBA history. You have all these duos that won titles together, and they can't even crack the top 10 because... It's just a ridiculous group that we have. Surprised you didn't bring up Kobe and Powell. I mean, I know that when you when you compare the two, Kobe and Powell do not compare to Kobe and Shaq, apples to apples, but I think Powell does warrant a mention. Absolutely. I would have them probably higher than a couple other selections on my list. They just did not come to my mind. I wouldn't have them top 10, but as far as the honorable mentions go. Any other HMs for you? I mean, like Steve Nash and Dirk, but again, with, without any playoff success, it's kind of hard to justify that. Uh, yeah, Carl in Stockton, it surprises me that, that you went with 92, though, when Malone won his MVP at 97. Why 92 over 97? It has much more to do with Stockton. I just think that he, when they made their finals, it had much more to do with the fact that they had a better overall team than with the fact that Stockton was playing at his peak level, because he just wasn't. He was better in the earlier part of the decade. Well, he let him down in both finals. Yeah, and I think that that is to answer your question why I chose 92, even though they didn't have as much team success. It's a ridiculous, ridiculous list. Stephen Clay Thompson should probably be an honorable mention, or at least on the short list. Even Stephen Draymond for the 2016 season. I mean, the list goes on and on. Right now, we have possibly Katie and Harden. I will say LeBron and Kyrie, I think just because Kyrie maybe isn't on that caliber of a player for his career as a whole, but for that finals run, for that playoffs run, he makes a decent case as that second guy. It's an incredible history. Maybe Kawhi and PG win one and they at least get on the honorable mentions list. Yeah, Sasha Vujicic and Carmelo Anthony. Right, and of course, Vladimir Rodmanovich. I mean, it's, we've got some great selections on this team as a whole. But that will do it for us here today. This was a very fun one. We hope you've enjoyed. We will be coming back with 
NBA talk this Wednesday, and then we will be doing our NFL show as, of course, the conference title games have wrapped up this Friday. And yes, as a Bills fan, I am in pain, and we will talk about all that. But that will do it for us here today. I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.